The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. Mr. Nagley won't be with us tonight. He's taking a, a few days of well-deserved rest. And so I'll be going solo tonight. We'll resume our catechism series. We had early on in the history of What Catholics Believe, uh, here we had a catechism series in progress and got all the way to Lesson 37 in this book, A Brief Catechism for Adults by Father William Cogan. And uh, we never went on then beyond Lesson 37. Today we will. And we'll go on to Lesson 38, which was the Fifth Commandment. Now those of you who have this book uh, can uh, turn to page 38. It's uh, rather page 143, Lesson 38, on the Fifth Commandment. And those who don't, have the book and actually find it online, because the entire book is indeed online and well presented there. <clears throat> now I remind you that this is not the ideal catechism. It's a, a brief catechism for adults, exactly as it says. And unfortunately, it has undergone some modifications since Vatican II. But uh, one helpful thing about the book is that it notes where there is a difference from the traditional practice with the, uh, the change made after Vatican II. It doesn't refer to Vatican II, but it does tell you what the, the old, older practice was. So uh, it's easy to determine where the changes have been made and uh, to follow the older practice. Now, with regard to the, the commandments in general, we uh, realize that uh, we recognize 10 commandments given in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. I'd like to read all the way through that, uh, that account of the commandments, and uh, we'll do so in the future. We'll not do so tonight. But you notice that each one of these uh, chapters or lessons in the uh, Catechism uh, gives a scriptural beginning. It starts with a scriptural quote. And this Lesson 38 begins with a reference to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the slime of the earth and breathed into his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. <clears throat> so this is uh, clearly a um, statement of the origin of the human soul. It's coming from the very, the very, very breath of God. And uh, it tells us that man is indeed created in the image of God by his very nature. And that gives his life a very special importance. Um, so when we talk about the fifth commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill, we're referring uh, above all to human life here. Uh, and, uh, you know, we realize that human life consists of the physical life of the body and also the spiritual life of the soul. So when we're talking about the import of the fifth commandment, we realize it applies to both the body and the soul. <clears throat> thou shalt not kill physically, thou shalt not kill spiritually. We need to examine how one kills one way or the other. But 
As always, it's important to understand the meaning of the terms. I mean, uh, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, is in the English language, which didn't exist in biblical times, and uh, certainly not when Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. So we, we always realize that it's necessary for us to go back to the original languages, the biblical languages themselves, in order to understand well the meaning of the terms. In fact, if one does some research on the uh, Fifth Commandment, and b by the way, I, I, in, this, in this case I should also warn you <coughs> that uh, the Protestants have, uh, shall we say, reordered the commandments. So um, when, you, when you hear about a case involving the display of the, of the Ten Commandments in the United States of America, and it going to court and the ACLU being involved in all that against establishing religion, uh, you'll find that the commandments as given, and even as they are in our nation's capital, are the Protestant, uh, Protestantized version of the commandments. What this means is that uh, in the 1500s, uh, in time of Luther, uh, Protestants actually inserted a, a second commandment after the first. The first is, the, I, am the, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods before me. Uh, they inserted the a second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, which made the what we Catholics know as the second commandment become the third commandment for the Protestants. And that is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And so it is with all of the other commandments. And how did they not wind up with 11 commandments, having inserted that uh, second commandment as thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image? Well, they simply, you might say, condensed uh, the last commandment into thou shalt not covet. So um, we won't get into uh, that question about the, the rightness or wrongness of this, except to say right now that uh, surely the first commandment, as we know it, as we Catholics learned it, and as we held it for 1,500 years before uh, Martin Luther saw the light of day, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods before me, uh, certainly covers uh, making graven image and images and worshipping them as idols. So there was really no need to introduce a special second commandment to repeat, repeat the meaning of the first, but for the fact that it was a, uh, basically a slap at Catholics for having statues and uh, other uh, representations, uh, pictures of saints and angels and so on, and of our Lord himself. Uh, in any case, uh, not to wander too far from, from the, uh, from the uh, matter here, we have to realize that uh, if you're going to do some research on what I'm referring to as the fifth commandment, as the Catholics, what the Catholics know as the fifth commandment, be careful where you look, <coughs> because you're going to find um, a reordering where the um, fifth commandment uh, in the Protestant lineup, as it were, is not the fifth commandment that you'll find in the Catholic lineup, which is uh, thou shalt not kill. So um, we actually have to go to the original language. And of course, the, the earliest uh, representations we have of this commandment come to us in Hebrew. And uh, the, the word for kill, which is translated into English as kill, in the Hebrew has the sense of murder, uh, essentially 
um, wantonly take an innocent life, directly take an innocent life. And even has a certain sense of defenselessness, defenselessness involved here. So it's not simply a matter of not killing. It's a matter of not killing um, wantonly, um, directly uh, attacking innocent and defenseless human life. Um, if it were really simply a matter of thou shalt not kill at all, anyone, ever, then the Hebrews uh, would have had to have been pacifists in order to keep that commandment. Uh, but no one has ever argued that the Hebrews were pacifists. <clears throat> no one ever argued that Moses himself was a pacifist, not at all. So we have to understand that the, uh, to truly grasp the meaning of the commandment, it does not forget, forbid the taking of human life in human life under any or all circumstances. It is a commandment that refers especially to an innocent and often defenseless life that must be spared. It would be murder to directly kill an innocent person with uh, from out of malice and uh, take their life uh, directly, as I say, intentionally. Now, the, the Greek also conveys very much the same idea. Uh, so you know that the Greek New Testament was all, uh, is really our standard form. The Gospel of St. Matthew was written originally in, in uh, Aramaic, uh, or written for his own Hebrew people. But uh, we do not have traces of that original of St. Matthew's Gospel. Again, of the four Gospels, with the oldest extant uh, manuscripts or codicils or, or fragments we have all are in Greek. And it was in Greek that it spread throughout the world. That was the preaching of the apostles. They carried it throughout the world. In, uh, in Greek, thus it was written down, and thus it has come down to us in the oldest uh, written form. And again, the Greek term, referring back to the commandment of Moses here, is a word that conveys the idea of killing an innocent human being. Um, so we're not just saying uh, thou shalt not kill, we're saying thou shalt not murder. And uh, so the second uh, question here on the page, 142 in our book, is what does the fifth commandment oblige you to do? And they answer, the fifth commandment obliges you to take care of your own life and the lives of others. Take care of, to care for, and uh, they go on to explain what it means to do that, but especially what, what it is not to do that, to sin against the commandment, to care for your life and the lives of others. Now, um, we have to realize that the commandments involve worst-case scenarios. So when the commandment says, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, it's not that anything short of that is okay, quite the contrary. Um, the commandments usually involve the ultimate evil in different categories. For example, bearing false witness against thy neighbor, which we know as the Eighth Commandment. It's kind of an ultimate expression of deceit, of lying, deception, uh, falsehood, whatever you want to call it, to actually, um, by uh, lying, uh, cause great harm to another person, body and soul. 
to use a lie to do that would be very, extremely wrong. But it forbids all manner of lying. Everything that would lead up to that great sin of testifying falsely against one's neighbor to convict him of a crime that he's not guilty of. Um, also, thou shalt not steal. Forbids uh, doing anything that leads in the direction of stealing. That's why it's forbidden to be jealous of another um, because of what that other person has that you want and can't get. Um, so even envy is forbidden because it leads ultimately to theft. And um, uh, when, we, when we read the, the child not commit adultery, it doesn't mean any you know, impure ideas or actions uh, that it come, fall short of adultery are okay. Quite the contrary. Uh, the commandment forbids anything that would lead to adultery, and adultery begins in the mind with thoughts and desires. Those two are forbidden. So it is with this commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, that whatever leads to it is forbidden. And that is why uh, question number three on page 142 in our book says, what are the mortal sins against the fifth commandment? And first of all, it lists murder itself, the unjust killing of an innocent person. Again, that is the ultimate result of all of the other sins that uh, lead in that direction. Uh, number two, abortion, deliberately causing the death of an unborn baby. <clears throat> Again, when we talk about the defenselessness of a life, certainly the unborn child is the ultimate defenseless life. And uh, when one aborts a child, it can be with, with or without the consent of the mother. When the mother uh, decides that, that, sort of decrees her child's death and actually pays someone to murder her child, it is a heinous crime of a very special sort. It is uh, infanticide, it, it, it's, it's the murdering of one's own child is totally contrary to nature. Because it is, it is the nature of parents to love their children, especially the mother, as a tender love for her child, would defend the child by na naturally with her own life. But uh, <clears throat> abortion is the extreme rejection of that love, and the extreme rejection or uh, the ultimate uh, opposite of what a mother should, should do and what a mother should be. So uh, abortion is, is gravely, gravely sinful because there's a very special obligation that a parent has and, and certainly a mother has to protect the life of her child, not to destroy it. And uh, so it is with suicide as well. That's the third answer they give you under question number three. Suicide, the taking of one's own life, and that also is considered particularly uh, awful in God, very particularly evil in God's eyes, because the lives that God has given to us, we should treasure, we should cherish. It is actually the standard that our Lord has given to us in the Old Testament, that Almighty God gave us in the Old Testament, and which our Lord has ratified in the New. The standard of our life, of our love for all others, should be based upon the love we have for our, our own lives. Uh, the second great commandment says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. A commandment that our Lord said is like the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, thy whole strength. So that the likeness between the second commandment and the first also emphasizes uh, 
the importance of loving one's own life and being grateful for it and cherishing it and caring for it. <laughs> if someone does not place any value on his own life, literally, truly, places no value on his own life, then it is hard to see how he could place any real value on anyone else's life. If he's not grateful to God for giving him his own life, it's hard to imagine him really, again, treasuring value, valuing the life of another. Now, remember what our Lord said. He said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And a man who loves his life in this world is, of course, in danger of, of going to hell. But our Lord meant by that that a man finds his worldly life, his earthly life, to be ultimately what he cares about and uh, to the expense of his soul, that a man is so attached to the things of this world that he's willing to sacrifice his soul for the sake of his bodily life in this world. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're not, <clears throat> we're not talking about that kind of love of one's life. We're talking about one's very existence here. And we're talking about the life in this world that was given us to serve God here. We are here to know and to love and to serve God. And so that life we must treasure, absolutely, and protect, care for. And uh, so suicide is a, uh, an ultimate evil. It is extremely uh, offensive to Almighty God. It is a mortal sin. The Church herself comments on this by refusing, refusing, to allow ecclesiastical burial for someone who commits suicide. <laughs> that person is considered to be a murderer, and a murderer of himself, again, which is going against a very special obligation one has to love that life that God gave, not just fling it back in his face and say, I don't want this, this is too much trouble for me. Now, um, when I say the church denies ecclesiastical burial, I mean that the church will not allow a requiem mass or a funeral mass, in any case, for that person will not allow them to have the obsequies of, of uh, burial in Catholic cemetery and sanctified ground. Um, only if a person um, has given signs of repentance or indications that that person was not responsible, was not fully responsible for what he or she did in killing himself, because the person was not thinking clearly, was not rational at the time. Now, someone might argue, well, um, if someone commits suicide, that's certainly not rational and not a rational act, and therefore we have to assume that anyone who commits suicide is not acting rationally. And Now, that argument, unfortunately, does not work. Why? <clears throat> because people do a lot of irrational things for which they're responsible. Uh, they do a lot of irrational things that because they do violence to their conscience and they justify them in their own mind. Um, someone can commit suicide uh, out of hatred um, for his own life that he's, he's developed over time by, by seriously thinking about it and cultivating that hatred for his own life in this world. One can feel very sorry for himself and uh, because of that self-pity commit suicide. One can commit suicide, in fact, at times to get back at other people. So I'll show them, I'll make them feel sorry for the way they've treated me. And, uh, you know, they'll regret, I'll do this, and they'll live with the consequences and, and regret this the rest of their lives. One can actually do that. Is it rational? Well, you argue, well, no. But is it with malice aforethought? Well, in those cases I mentioned, uh, yes, actually. 
So they'd be responsible for having consented to it somewhere along the line. They are responsible for consenting to what ultimately they do to themselves, and it's very evil. Now, the, the fourth point they make under question three here on page 142 is what they call mercy killing. We'd refer to it as euthanasia. Uh, euthanasia from heu meaning good and thanatos meaning death. So supposedly good death, euthanasia, is truly a, uh, a euphemism it, for something very evil. Mercy killing, um, that we put someone to death in order to rescue them from some very difficult, even painful situation. Um, so it is today that this has become more and more accepted, unfortunately. Even in some of our state laws, it is sanctioned, <coughs> uh, approved. And, um, but this is the result of abortion. Abortion has so cheapened human life in the United States of America and throughout the world that, um, well, human life can be taken for any number of reasons these days. A person can <coughs> despise his own life. And in some um, uh, European countries, it's, it's okay to go ahead and euthanize little children even who are not well. And uh, that's often the reason they give for aborting a baby. They say, well, it's the baby's best interest that it be killed now rather than be allowed to live. So this idea of mercy killing is quite rife and it's going to become more and more so. Um, if the abortion culture and uh, the uh, party of uh, the, the political party dedicated entirely to abortion um, just su succeeds in gaining complete power so that no one can resist. So no one will be safe and no life will be safe. Mercy killing, they say, is the killing of an innocent person who is dying of an incurable disease. Well, that's what they say in the book. Now, it's the killing of an innocent person simply because the person wants to be killed, wants to die, or it is, uh, let's say, convenient uh, that that person be dead. And so, uh, his relatives can even, even withdraw life support uh, when it is, even when it's ordinary means of preserving the life. So that's to the extent that it's, it's come already and you know, it's, it's becoming worse here as people reject Almighty God and His sovereignty and the gift of life that He gives. Now, number five here is causing serious injury or death by criminal neglect. So um, we have on our laws, uh, in our law books, the category of crime called um, uh, manslaughter. And sometimes this manslaughter involves um, just gross negligence, um, causing the injury or death of another person. And so someone who has a particular obligation to protect another's life and who fails to do so, uh, that very neglect can be a form of murder. A parent has an obligation to feed a child. If the parent does not feed the child properly, uh, what, the ch what the child needs to live, that child be guilty of, that parent can be guilty of murder by neglect. Uh, a parent has an obligation to prevent children from being injured or putting themselves in grave danger. A parent who fails to do that wantonly, with, with even malice aforethought, just um, 
who just totally neglects that obligation uh, to protect the child can be found actually so responsible that they're guilty of negligent manslaughter and almost even charged with murder. So uh, it is that uh, we can cause serious injury or death to ourselves, actually our own lives, by criminal neglect, by not taking care of ourselves. Um, someone who um, refuses to allow himself to have the things that he needs to live to be well, to function well, uh, to survive, that person could be uh, actually committing suicide before our very eyes. Maybe that's not his intent, but if it occurred to him, I'm doing serious damage to my health by being a chain smoker, <clears throat> by over-drinking, uh, for example, I'm, I'm destroying my liver, uh, by taking unnecessary risks by the way I drive or other activities that I enjoy, putting myself at grave risk without cause, just for the sake of, because I enjoy it, uh, I'm amused by it, I'm entertained by it. That person, again, could be guilty of criminal neglect uh, in causing serious injury or risking serious injury or even death to himself, let alone to another. And then we have uh, number six, sterilization. Uh, to uh, frustrate the organ that God has given us to give life <clears throat> by doing violence to it, by deactivating it, by destroying it. <clears throat> um, again, um, God has given to us faculties, the organs we have, to provide the services they do to our lives. And in this case, we're talking about to the life of another, to actually giving life. Remember, that's the very first command that God ever gave to any human being. Increase, multiply, and fill the earth. <clears throat> and so God wanted that power of giving life to be used in us to provide other souls for heaven. And when we frustrate that, especially as it is done these days for the sake of avoiding giving life, but just for the sake of deriving the benefits, the pleasures of using or abusing that reproductive power for the sake of our own selfish purposes and thwarting God's purposes, the life-giving purposes of God. That's a very grave sin. Uh, I mentioned drunkenness here, number seven. Uh, again, drunkenness is something that impairs the mind. As human beings, uh, we have the power to think rationally. That's very important for us to maintain a moral life. And uh, when we drink alcoholic beverages or, or use drugs to the point where it affects our thinking processes so we can no longer think straight, uh, we are in the process of getting drunk. <clears throat> no one can be tipsy, which involves perhaps his physical movements being rather clumsy and his reaction time slowed. <clears throat> could that be a mortal sin? Uh, it could be if he realizes he's going to be operating machinery, if he's going to be driving um, himself or others uh, away from the bar and driving them home, <clears throat> and yet he's impaired, physically impaired, in his operation of the vehicle, and he knows it. Um, he would be putting himself and others at risk, not just himself and anyone else in the car, but any pedestrians he might, might get in his way as he's driving. He's putting them all at risk. When does he become responsible? When it occurs to him, um, he might have had a couple of drinks at that bar and realize, yeah, I know my limit. If I have another one, I know I'm going to be 
uh, struggling to maintain physical control, but he goes ahead and does it. He's, he's accepting. He's already accepted the consequences of what he knows he's risking, even if it never happens. He's already consented to it to that extent. And that's the point. He becomes guilty. Of course, from then on in, it just gets worse and worse. The guilt becomes greater and greater. But it doesn't have to wait until he turns the key in the ignition be, uh, for him to be guilty of uh, taking that drink. Uh, if someone's completely drunk, and so that he cannot think straight, so that he not only is out of the control physically, but he's out of control mentally, well, this um, deactivates, in a sense, short circuits even his moral compass as far as thinking of morality. And he, again, can get himself into extremely serious and compromising situations. Uh, this is all condemned by God. Uh, it's a form of self-mutilation. Now, if somebody can mutilate himself by cutting an ear off or cutting a nose off or plucking an eye out, <clears throat> our Lord even talks about that in the Gospel. Uh, if your right eye scandalizes you, pluck it out and cast it from you. Our Lord's not suggesting you do that. He wants you to be horrified at the thought of it, but he wants you to be more horrified at the thought of committing mortal sin and mutilating your soul. If your right hand scandalizes you, cut it off and throw it away. Cast it from you, as though you find it a threat to you. Why is it a threat? Because it, with your own hand, you threaten to murder your own soul. And that's our Lord's message here. You have to protect your soul. So you wouldn't think of cutting off your right hand. No sane person would do that. Cut off his right hand and throw it away. Of course, our Lord isn't really at all suggesting that. And those who heard him say these words knew that very well. He was warning them about the gravity of sin and what it is, what you do to the soul when you, when you commit sins. And drunkenness is one of those sins that actually impairs that faculty of the soul which enables you to think straight, to think in terms of what is true and to also will in terms of what is good and right. And when you impair that by drink or drugs, or whatever else you, you do to yourself, it is sinful. And uh, they talk about number eight here, serious anger or hatred. <clears throat> so when they say serious anger or hatred, uh, they're distinguishing it from just losing one's temper for a moment or becoming frustrated, manifesting that frustration, becoming impatient. Um, uh, we're talking about an anger here that is actually a, a danger, represents a danger to oneself or to another. Um, so when they say serious anger, it's anger that is um, willful. Um, you know, one, one can fly off the handle, one can be a choleric and overreact to things, uh, heaven knows, but they generally simmer down rather quickly and don't generally carry a grudge. But others can, when they, they, they may be slow to anger, but when they do become angry, it's like this seething, uh, simmering burn <laughs> that goes on, and they can actually carry a grudge. And uh, that's something that offends God very, very much. Our Lord has made it very clear, we, we can't do that. We cannot carry a grudge against another person and expect to enter heaven. We have to deal with that. Uh, our Lord set the example for us from his first word on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His first words after they raised him on the cross. Amazing, but true. That's the example that he set. 
So our Lord does take very seriously our anger uh, toward each other, uh, even unto hatred, a certain malice. Um, how does one know whether or not he actually hates another person? Well, generally, he could ask himself one question uh, to start with. He might say, would I relish the thought of this person, with the object, the object of my anger, would I relish the thought of that person suffering harm and grave harm? Would I like to see him hurt? Would I like to see him suffer grave loss? Would I like to see him die? Would I like to see him suffer in the process of dying? And if the answer to those questions is, yes, I would like that. I'd be very pleased with that. I'd be satisfied with that. Then one knows, okay, I have a hatred for that person. Would I want to see that person uh, lose his soul and go to hell? That is like the extreme of malice, to say, yes, I would like that to happen. The curse that is used with the, the D word, if it is meant, is a mortal sin of actual cursing someone. So you see, God forbids that serious anger and hatred as mortally sinful because it actually is directed to another human being in such a way that we would like to see them suffer grave harm and would be delighted by their suffering. That's very evil. That's, very, that's kind of devilish, actually. Not at all divine. Not at all. And uh, number nine, helping another to commit a mortal sin. Well, there you have a question of scandal. And uh, there you're talking about helping another person to murder his own soul. Um, because that's what scandal does. Scandal actually is a form of, of a, uh, what should I say, uh, attack. It's an attack on the, on, the, on the spiritual life of another person. It's an attack on the uh, grace in the soul of another person. To get another person to follow your bad example, follow your evil counsel and encouragement to do something sinful so that that soul suffers grave loss spiritually. That's a very, very evil thing. Our Lord, again, talks about scandal. I mentioned that, cutting the hand off and cutting the eye off. If your eye or your hand scandalize you, that's bad enough. But what about you, you scandalize another? I mean, if, if you do something sinful yourself, you can repent of it and receive forgiveness. But when you cause another to sin... How do you repent of that person's sin? You can repent of having caused that person to sin, but it is the other person who sin. How do you go and, and get that sin forgiven? How do you repent of that unless you can move the other person to repent and seek forgiveness and receive uh, God's mercy? So uh, it's bad enough to have to go and answer for our own sins, but when we realize I'm going to face God and, and be responsible not only for my own sins, but I'm going to be responsible for the sins of others that I've caused and the damage to their souls that I have caused, that's an enormous responsibility. And it should be very humbling to us. It should also inspire us a great desire, first of all, to set a good example and to try to repair whatever bad example we've set. Can we do that? Of course we can. How? Well, we can take direct action to offset the bad example we've given. 
um, by word or example, but perhaps there are exa examples that we've given to other souls in the past. We have no idea where they are, even if they're still alive. Well, again, we realize that we have an advocate in heaven. We have our Lord who is omnipotent. And we have a, a great power in the Blessed Mother's Prayer. So we appeal to them to find the souls we've injured and to repair the damage we've done. And um, can it be done? Oh, yes. Yes, certainly. Uh, the graces are there that could repair the damage we've done. Now, one might be moved to despair in this, which would, again, lead one to do things against the fifth commandment, perhaps. <clears throat> but that would be a grave, grave sin against God. That's one of the sins against the Holy Ghost, you know, despair. So we must never give in to that. But it's our pride that leads us to despair because we think, well, I'm so bad and I've done so much harm. God himself doesn't have the power to correct the evil that I've done. God himself doesn't have the power to overpower the evil that I've done. Well, who do I think I am? I mean, that's, that's what the devil, the devil likes to think that, you know, <clears throat> that I can do so much damage that God himself can't fix it. <coughs> uh, that's the devil's pride. And it would be in us too. <coughs> yes, God can repair the damage you've done. He can find those souls. And he can bless them because we're praying now for them and begging God to have mercy on them, even as our Lord cried out on the cross in his innocence, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And God has rescued us from our sinfulness. <clears throat> and so we are asking him to have mercy and to extend that mercy to others whom we ourselves have injured by our bad example. So yes, scandal can be repaired. I mean, all you have to do is think about St. Mary Magdalene, think about all the scandal that she caused in her illicit relationships. I mean, the Bible says that she was possessed by seven devils. Our Lord had to cast them out of her. <clears throat> so she had a lot to be sorry for, a lot to repent of, a lot of regrets, and yet she had an enormous amount of love for our Lord. And our Lord held her up as an example of loving much and being forgiven much. So if God gives us examples like Mary Magdalene, um, St. Augustine and so many other saints who are not always very saintly, um, then he did that precisely as an object lesson to you and me. Um, that there's no room for despair, hopelessness. Uh, that whenever we feel anything like that coming upon us, we should immediately respond by insisting on making an act of confidence in God and his love and his power and uh, humbling ourselves before God and realizing Oh God, as, as gross as my sins are and as, as much bad example and negligence as I'm guilty of, I know that thy power is, is infinitely greater than anything I could do. So I trust in thee, and I ask you please humbly to repair the damage I've done. As I ask you to have mercy on me and repair the damage I've done to my own soul, I beg thee for the grace for others that you can and will repair the damage I've done to their souls too. And we pray that with confidence. So number four here, question four, are you ever allowed to use force or to kill? And the answer is, yes, you are. And generally in these circumstances, when it's required for self-defense. But even in self-defense, we are allowed to use only as much force as is necessary to offset the threat. In other words, uh, we have to neutralize the threat to our life and limb, and we can use the force that is necessary to do that. Any more force is excessive, okay? 
So uh, we have to be careful about that. Now, you know, it's, some it's very difficult sometimes to know where that, where that limit lies. And, uh, but we're just asked to be uh, thoughtful, reasonable, careful with ordinary human care uh, in this. And it might, we might have regrets later saying, well, I didn't have to go that far. I didn't have to, you know, be so uh, lethal, shall I say, in my defense of myself. But, um, you know, second-guessing oneself after the fact, when one is in, in grave danger of, um, of being severely injured or killed, well, you know, you are, you are entitled to use the necessary force uh, that you see as, as, as necessary at the time to defend yourself, defend your life, defend the, defend the integrity of body and soul. So... Um, now, this applies also to those you're responsible for, to defend your family, for example. I mean, we ourselves might be willing to say, well, if I'm attacked, I would be willing to let it go. I would be willing to simply uh, not respond and, and take that in all humility and offer it to our Lord. I, I just heard the story of a, of a fine gentleman uh, who was in a restaurant uh, while he was on vacation and uh, a uh, gentleman at the table behind him stood up and s smacked him in the face because he said he was bumping his chair. And knowing that uh, fine Catholic gentleman, he probably apologized and did not resort to any aggression. He didn't uh, retaliate, okay? He would not, uh, not only uh, retaliate in kind, but he probably, in all humility, accepted the rebuke. Um, but it's different if you or a loved one of yours who depends upon you to defend them and protect them are threatened. If they are threatened with uh, violence, you have a right to respond, not only to protect yourself, but you might have an obligation to respond, to defend your family, your country. Number five, well, actually, um, there is a footnote here uh, under number four in our book. You may kill in defense of life, bodily integrity, chastity, or material goods of great value. If possible, you should flee from the attacker or wound him rather than kill him, if that is a real possibility for you. Again, using the force that is necessary, <clears throat> but only as much force as is necessary, as you could reasonably determine at the time. Uh, now, number five, is abortion ever allowed? The answer is no. Why? Because it is always murder. It is always a deliberate destruction of an innocent life and a defenseless life. And uh, there it is and can be no just justification for it under any circumstances. Um, and there's a footnote with that also. Any Catholic who knowingly and willingly has an abortion is automatically excommunicated from the Church. And anyone who helps someone to procure an abortion, commits a mortal sin. Actually, anyone, any principle in the abortion, it's not just one who uh, undergoes an abortion, but one who actually uh, does the aborting, uh, the physician or whoever causes the abortion, is excommunicated as well. Anyone paying for the abortion and so on. In other words, anyone who has a direct contribution to the result of aborting the child uh, is actually subject to that penalty of excommunication from the church. This is the traditional uh, penalty of the church. 
And I understand it was uh, lifted somewhat for a short while, uh, but even the Novus Ordo now has reinstated it. Um, so maybe they're, they're, the conscience uh, required this to be to be reinstated here. So um, anyway, this is the, the church's teaching, and I don't think it needs takes a lot of uh, explaining for anyone uh, really of goodwill. Um, <clears throat> We see the damage that abortion has done to our own country and our own, the whole world in terms of the value of human life. Um, and we see the damage that is, is followed from abortion. It is savagery at its worst, and it, it just spreads into all aspects of life uh, with the violence and the, the cheapening of human life uh, so that it becomes worth little or even nothing. Um, we, you know, we, it spreads into euthanasia necessarily. How could it not, right? Uh, it spreads into uh, violence, uh, human being and human being, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, if you can kill a baby because this baby is an inconvenience to me at, at this life and is threatening my, my career or whatever, my lifestyle, my sex life, as they call it, uh, then why would any human life be safe for any reason? Um, so we see the, the consequence of this spreading like a poison throughout our entire society. It has to be stopped. It has to be stopped right in, in the very root of it. And the very root of it is while the child is in the womb. We have to protect that life. Uh, absolutely. Even with our own lives. That's, that is what is natural to us. Even with fallen human nature, that is still what is natural for us to do. Even corrupt human nature still finds that natural to do. So how unnatural are the times we live in? How unnatural are the people living today? Uh, Anti-natural, actually. Number six, is suicide ever allowed? Uh, no, your life belongs to God, and he alone has the right to take that life. But he calls you to himself for judgment. Seven, is mercy killing ever allowed? No, because it is murder. It is a direct taking of an, an innocent life. When I say a direct taking of an innocent life, one may say, well, what if the person's a criminal and wants to die? Well, they're not innocent. Look, the only uh, authority on earth that has any right to take human life, um, in, in, meaning criminal life, somebody who is actually guilty of a capital offense, is this the ultimate authority in a society, in the state? <coughs> yes, the state does have that, does have that right to uh, condemn to death those who are guilty of very, very grave crimes, not only against individuals, but against the society because of the, the import of the crime. The very nature of the crime is basically an attack on the, actually, safety and security of the pe people living in that society. Um, so, <laughs> if the laws that we, we provide for that are under attack by um, individual cases of murder and so on, the state has the right to impose the death penalty for that. But it's not up to an individual to take it upon himself to say, well, I'm going to go out and just uh, start uh, putting to death people I think are, are criminal. 
I'm just going to, I, I think this politician is a criminal. I think, um, you know, that business owner is criminal because of what he's selling or what he's doing. I mean, this is what the left does. This is what leftists do. Uh, that would ultimately just be mob rule and anarchy. So it's not permitted for individuals to take it upon themselves to decide who, who is worthy of death and to go and uh, be, uh, you know, uh, basically judge and executioner for people they think are, are, are worthy of death in their own minds. It's, it's, absolute, it's just murder to do that. So, um, but the state, the ultimate authority that has the right to make the laws and to enforce the laws, does have the authority to uh, actually condemn to death somebody who is attacking the laws that protect the lives of all in that society. So the next question is, number eight, that is, is sterilization ever allowed? And the answer they give you is to have the, the fallopian tubes or the seminal, well, vesicles, excuse me, tied or cut is always a mortal sin. In other words, to do violence to oneself, healthy organs that are necessary for reproducing human life, to have those destroyed or impaired deliberately um, and directly would be a mortal sin. The reproductive organs may be removed only when they are diseased and pre present a danger to the whole body. So if there's a genuine pathological condition which threatens the overall health of the body, yes, it's permissible to deal with that, to remove or um, <clears throat> to impair those organs, uh, but to simply go after them to destroy their power of giving life, um, that would be immortally sinful. Uh, the, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to human beings is the power of giving life. It is, you might say, a divine power that we have over God, in a sense, to demand that he create a new human soul because of what we choose to do. And it is a man and a woman uniting uh, in that, in that uh, uh, fertilized ovum there that takes on the, the DNA of a, of a human life that actually begins a human life, that single cell. God is... Well, we demand of him the creation of even soul. Be that, that single person, that individual person, that one person, unique and immortal. That is a tremendous power, an enormous gift. And uh, to wantonly destroy that, especially for selfish purposes, that is a grave crime. Uh, what kind of sin is it to get drunk? Question number nine, to get slightly drunk can be a venial sin, unless it puts others at risk, as I say. To get seriously drunk is a mortal sin. To impair one's ability to think and to reason, to will, uh, what is right or wrong, that would be mortally sinful. Um, it says here in the footnote, if you, you are guilty of any sins you commit while under the influence of alcohol, even though later on you do not remember committing them. But insofar as you could have and should have foreseen them, you, by getting drunk, you consent to these things. So, um, to the extent that you consent to them, you're responsible. To the extent you're responsible, you will be punished by God and sometimes by men. Are you ever allowed to use narcotics? And the answer is, uh, it is permissible to use narcotics only 
when they are provided by some competent authority, such as a doctor, who can dispense them, and then only according to his directions. Now, uh, that's a little bit um, loose, I would say, because you'll find doctors who prescribe narcotics without good reason. Uh, they're even criminally chargeable for doing that. Uh, so the point is that narcotics do, of their very nature, impair the thought processes of the mind. The drugs, drugs do this. That's why people take them. And uh, one may say, well, if I can drink alcohol, <clears throat> if I can have a drink, why can't I use drugs? Isn't it basically the same thing? It's not a sin for me to have a drink as long as it, you know, uh, doesn't make me drunk. So why should it be a sin for me to use uh, some kind of drug, narcotic, whatever? And the answer is quite simply that one can take it, a drink, without the intention of impairing his ability to think. But one takes a drug precisely for the purpose of altering his mind. He's taking a drug for the very purpose of affecting the way he thinks. That's not the case necessarily where somebody drinks. If someone were to start drinking with the intention that I'm going to get drunk, then that'd be a mortal sin with the very, even when he's opening the bottle, he'd be committing a mortal sin because he had that intention to get drunk. <clears throat> but I think we can concede that most people, I, at least in my experience anyway, uh, don't drink to get drunk. They have the in, no intention of getting drunk when they, when they take a drink. They drink in moderation and they're not impaired in their thinking. But um, someone takes drugs precisely for the sake of uh, the mind-altering effect that a drug has. I mean, there are receptors in the brain that are affected by these drugs. And so uh, it, is, it is morally sinful to take a drug without some real necessity. But the point is there can be such necessity. I mean, we have, uh, we have anesthesia today, which enables us to escape great pain during surgery um, or other, uh, you know, injuries and so on, as their healing require us to take something to dull the pain. And what happens is these, these uh, drugs do affect the brain and they do uh, dull the pain and make life livable and even enable us to function and to carry out the duties of our state in life, in spite of the fact that pain ordinarily would hamper us. Um, and that is a great blessing. Uh, we can thank God for that, that uh, we live at a time when that is possible. But it is also moral to use these drugs for these very good purposes. Actually, in that case, they avoid the greater evil uh, that would come from impairment or even, even death, even despair if someone is in great pain, because they can actually um, do, in that sense, a, to relieve pain and suffering, which is in itself a good. <clears throat> so, um, you know, but, but one who takes drugs just for recreational purposes, uh, that, that clearly is something very simple. So, uh, in any case, uh, number 10 uh, needs a little bit of adjustment, I think. It's a little too broad. Uh, number 11, are hatred and anger mortal sins? Uh, yes, to hate another person is a mortal sin. And uh, anger toward another person 
if it is simply the fact that we don't like this other person, we're upset about this other person, we think this person has offended us somehow, uh, generally is a venial sin. But if we cultivate it and fan the flames of that little ember, uh, it can become a mortal sin. So we need to be very, very careful about that and have the will to forgive. Christ demands that, that we have the will to forgive. So even that resentment we might have towards someone or that uh, reserve and distrust, a dislike for another person, um, our Lord wants us to overcome that. He wants us to be civil, at least civil, to everyone. Show the, the, the common civil amenities to everyone, courtesies, as it were. Um, so that doesn't mean we have to let someone attack us and hurt us, of course, as I mentioned before. But it does mean that we cannot have malice toward anyone. I guess, put it that way. We cannot be motivated by malice toward anyone. Um, Number 12, is there such a thing as sinless anger? The answer is yes, there can be a just anger. Our Lord showed that himself. We see our Lord knotting the cords and driving the money changers from the temple because they've turned the house of prayer of God into a den of thieves. But, so anger prompted by a zeal for justice, honor of God, some other good, can be justified when we see, for example, a child being scandalized by someone who's cursing and swearing, or worse. Um, It's actually quite natural for us to have a just anger. Again, you can't be motivated by a malice toward the person, our, our motivation is a love for God, and a love for what is right. That's the, that's, that's the motivation, even with that righteous anger. It's rather a love for what is right and good, rather than a, um, anger or malice toward even the perpetrator of the evil. The footnote says, Jesus, for example, was angry with the buyers and sellers in the temple. And that's the example that they give you here. <clears throat> um, but you might... We would probably say that was righteous indignation on our Lord's part. So his purpose uh, there was not to actually inflict injury on those people, but it was to stop them and to put an end to their evil trade, which he did. It's not said anywhere that our Lord caused them injury or grave injury. If he had, I suppose they would have brought him upon charges The fact is, though, it was their fear of some righteous, what would have been righteous uh, justice inflicted on them that made them run from him. Um, So would that everyone had the sense to fear God in that way and to uh, stop doing the evil they're doing because they have a a fear of God's righteous anger. But we don't all have that same sense, it seems. Number 13, in, in what other way can you sin against the fifth commandment? It says, by helping another to commit sin, by your sinful actions or words, or by giving another whatever is necessary to commit sin. And uh, we read in the moral theology books about the cooperation in the sin of another, and how uh, by encouragement, by flattering words, uh, by uh, assisting them in any way in the evil that they're doing, that's giving scandal again, and uh, so we are committing sins against the fifth commandment in, in anything we do that consents to and 
in any way uh, justifies or even glorifies the sin of another person. We're helping that person go to hell, is what we're doing. We're actually, in a sense, pushing that other person in the direction of hell by assisting them in their sin. Take, for example, if somebody is doing something very evil, um, and their parents often know what it is to um, have children who come to their majority and maturity, maybe fall in love or think they fall in love with someone whom they cannot marry. Let's say a daughter wants to marry a divorced man. A Catholic uh, parent would say, that is absolutely unacceptable. You can't do that. That's a mortal sin. That would be a sin of adultery for you, and I cannot support you in this. Now, the parent were to weaken because the daughter whines and complains and even responds angrily, you're ruining my life. You're not supporting me in the happiest time of my life, and so on and so forth. And uh, the parent uh, feels threatened. Perhaps the parent feels like, well, oh my goodness, I'm losing the affection of my daughter. What happens if she goes through with this? As children, my grandchildren will be kept from me. And so I have to play along. I have to go along with this, which I believe is mortally sinful and will lead ultimately to the damnation of my daughter's soul. I have to go along with this and pretend that it's okay with me. Well, that would be, well, we're describing here in number 13. It's, um, again, a source of great scandal. By, um, well, encouraging another by failing to fulfill the responsibility to um, speak the truth, uh, the truth of our faith, and to uh, stand firmly for our Lord and your love for him, and letting some other lesser love uh, justify in your mind, or some pr pr uh, prompt you or motivate you to betray your love for God and his love for you. It's never justified. And it would be so sad, so sad, for a mother or a father to uh, actually encourage one's own daughter or son to live in mortal sin, die in mortal sin, be condemned to hell forever. And all in the name of what? In the name of love? What a travesty that would be. <clears throat> so we have to be very careful. You know, sin is loving badly, in the sense, loving the lesser good in, and rejecting the, the greater good, in this case, God, the ultimate good, and preferring the, the lesser, uh, the created good, and setting that up as a kind of idol. And uh, we can be tempted severely in this earth um, by those um, we love here, but our love may not be the purest uh, because it is not motivated by love for God. It is love for selfish reasons. And it shows when we're called upon to make choices there. and We choose sin and the sins of others to support others in their sin rather than to stand for our faith and our love for our God. Number 14, is capital punishment the death penalty ever allowed? The answer is yes, the state has the right to administer the death penalty for a grave crime in the interest of the common welfare. And I talked about that earlier. Of course, there, the, the state itself has to be just. If the state itself is not motivated by truly 
<coughs> principles, at least the natural law, let alone the faith, our faith, then this, the state can become the great oppressor. The state itself can become the great murderer if it's condemning people who are doing what is right and being faithful to God, then the state itself can become the monster murderer um, and become guilty of uh, the most massive crimes against humanity, as they call them today. So we must make sure that uh, the societies we live in never degenerate to that point where such evil people get control of our laws and their enforcement. Number 15, can there ever be a just war? And the answer is yes, there can be a just war, uh, an offensive war and a defensive war, are lawful when there is a serious and just cause, if there is no other means to obtain justice. Now, of course, because of the terrible destruction caused by war and the great loss of life in war, there has to be a, a commensurate serious reason in order to fight a war. There has to be hope of victory to make things right, to avert a greater evil, and to bring about justice. There has to be real hope of that. Um, if you read the moral theology books, you find that uh, any action that puts a whole class of people or whole society at risk requires very, very serious conditions be met. Um, all the way from a, a strike in a company to a nation going to war. Uh, can you imagine the responsibility of leaders who maneuver their nations into war for whatever reasons that are not just, um, that are um, based upon selfish reasons? The responsibility is incredibly grave. Uh, we have that happening in our own day, it seems, where wars are used by politicians to, well, serve their own political careers. And uh, it's very evil. Again, this is what the leftists do. Um, but uh, in any case, um, that's another story. One could have to do an entire program on the question of a just war, which perhaps someday we should do. Now, to sum up, if one were to ask, well, which is the greater evil, to murder the body or murder the soul? Well, the greater evil would always be murdering the soul, because the, the death of the body is the first death, the death of the soul is the second death that is referred to in scriptures. <coughs> the death of the body, the first death, <coughs> is something that is only temporary, as the body is going to rise from the dead. The death of the soul, the loss of sanctifying grace, the soul being condemned uh, eternally, is the permanent, and uh, it's, it's simply the irretrievable death. Um, uh, it, is, it is permanent and it is fixed. So that is by far the worst. Our Lord says, do not fear one who can kill the body but cannot touch the soul. Fear one who can actually cast both the body and the soul to hell. And saying, if you're going to fear, fear God. And our Lord is talking to primarily those who do not love God. And so they have to begin to fear him um, as the scriptures say, the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom for those who do not love God. They can at least pay him that respect of fearing his justice, his just punishments. That's the start, the start of a spiritual life, the start of repentance, actually. But the point is that 
uh, scandal is among the very worst things you can do to another soul, and that is to lead another soul away from God and into sin, into death. Now, one thing that I hadn't mentioned before is that incitement, incitement of another to do violence to another person is another sin against the fifth commandment. Uh, we have a recent example of that now. I'm sure you saw that in the news, most of you anyway. Um, that an article in Atlantic, Atlantic magazine, I, I gather, uh, truly a standard run-of-the-mill leftist publication. Uh, an article in, in Atlantic, uh, I won't mention the name of the, 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 the author because it's inconsequential. But uh, he wrote to the effect that the rosary, the rosary is a, an attack weapon. That the rosary is uh, something that these rad trads or traditional Catholics are weaponizing. And he said that uh, the rosary is kind of our equivalent of the AR-15 rifle even trying to liken having a rosary in your pocket to concealed carry of a lethal weapon. Now, uh, the purpose of the article is very, very clear. It was very transparent intention of this man to incite a certain uh, fear, anger, outrage, resentment, um, even hatred against traditional Catholics or the very sight of a rosary. The very sight of a rosary is meant to call our modern-day snowflakes who are all ready to uh, react viciously and violently against whatever offends them. To This is meant to provoke violence against traditional Catholics. Uh, and even more so if they have a visible rosary on them. Uh, but at the same time, it's also an admission from the powers of hell um, that uh, the rosary really is a spiritual weapon. We know that. Uh, we've never made any secret of that. It's a spiritual weapon. That um, it is a weapon that brings down not death, but life. Uh, not uh, condemnation, but grace from God. And so, uh, but the devil doesn't see it that way. The devil sees the rosary as a weapon. After all, I mean, the Bible tells us that the devil, well, the church interpreting the scriptures in this way, tells us that the devil sees our Blessed Mother and all of her virtues as an army drawn up in battle array against him, fully armed against him. And so, yes, the devil sees Our Lady as a great adversary, as an entire army of virtues arrayed against him. Um, so, of course, he's going to see the rosary as, as a weapon. Um, even the reference of this fellow... Um, the school in, in leftist causes. Um, uh, even the reference to the rosary as being the equivalent of our AR-15 is kind of interesting because we think of the 15 decades of the rosary. We think of the, the Ave, the A, and the R as rosary. Uh, interpret it any way you want. It just seems kind of ironic that he, he makes that likeness of the rosary as a spiritual AR-15, because in a sense it, it really, really is, but spiritually so, and he has no concept of this. His way of looking at it is the, very, is the devil's own way of looking at it, the Satan's way of looking at it. That's his vantage point. And that's what he wants others to see in the rosary. 
He wants others to see the rosary as Satan sees it. He wants others to react to the rosary as Satan reacts to it. And he's trying to incite hatred and violence against traditional Catholics who still hold to the rosary. So this is a uh, mortal sin to do that. That would be a mortal sin against the fifth commandment to incite violence and hatred toward others, especially others for doing good. Uh, whereas you yourself are dedicated to, to evil. Now, my dear faithful, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Silly, so it was just a matter of time, wasn't it, really? I mean, what would you expect? Of course, knowing the way they think and the way things are going, um, I guess it's kind of surprising that, that it's coming out only now and in this way. Um, remember when um, Francis was notified years ago uh, that the faithful were offering so many rosaries, millions of rosaries for him, and he mocked them for that. He mocked them for that, said it was kind of neo-Gnosticism to count all these rosaries. So the mockery for the rosary is right there in the Vatican. So why would we not expect some young um, person writing in Atlantic um, attacking the rosary? when this is the lead that is set by the pontiff of the new order. So in any case, my dear faithful, I'll let you go with this here. This is our treatment uh, of the fifth commandment. There's a great deal more that can be said, but never fear. Do not fear, I will not say it here and now. But uh, I, I welcome your questions with regard to the fifth commandment, so please be, feel free to send them in by email. And uh, next time we uh, meet for the catechism session, we'll go on to Lesson 39. Uh, may God bless you all. I keep you in my prayers, and I ask you to please keep me in prayer, your prayers also. And so many other dear intentions of people who are suffering, they need your help. That also is a very good way to cover a multitude of sins by the charity of prayer. So I commend uh, my intentions to yours and asking you to pray also for them. May God bless you all.